Wedge Issues is brought to you by WISPolitics.com, a place where political insiders go for news, opinion, and campaign information. Once again, that's WISPolitics.com. Before you listen to this episode of Wedge Issues, if you haven't read the Cap Times four-part series, Failure to Protect, or at least the first installment of it, go to our website, do that, then come back here. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about state government and politics in Wisconsin. This past week, the Cap Times has published a four-part series by reporter Caitlin Farrell, culminating from a four-month investigation into the Wisconsin Army National Guard and its treatment of soldiers who are sexually abused in its service. Caitlin tells the story first through the eyes of First Lieutenant Megan Plunkett, a soldier who says she was sexually assaulted by three different Guard colleagues over the course of three years. The series goes on to examine the Guard's responses to sexual assault allegations, an internal investigation into one of the units Plunkett served in, the phenomenon of military sexual trauma, and the Guard's efforts to strip Plunkett of her military benefits. Caitlin joined me in the studio this week to talk about the story, what she learned from her own investigation, and how this series came together. Stay tuned. Here with me this week is my colleague, Caitlin Farrell, who has devoted most of her time, both free and work, the last few weeks and months to this really widespread and, and deep investigation of a culture of sexual misconduct and how it is treated uh, within the Wisconsin Army National Guard. Uh, This past week, we've been running a series of of these stories. It started with a a really long read, but um, didn't feel like a long read. (laughs) It's always good. uh, Yeah, (laughs) uh, a a long read about uh, one woman's story in particular. And we've been running a series of follow-ups, kind of looking at different aspects of what has happened since she made these allegations and and how the Guard has uh, responded to that and, and how the Guard kind of responds to sexual assault and misconduct allegations in general. So thank you, Caitlin, for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. (laughs) Can you tell us just a little bit? I mean, I I think people hopefully have read the stories before they're listening to this, but just just tell me a little bit about, in a nutshell, what this series is about and how you came to work on it. Sure. So, yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, this this series is a story. it, it, It uses the story, really, of one woman, Megan Plunkett, to really be a catalyst to to talk about a system that we really as civilians don't get a glimpse into often to really understand how the National Guard, which is a really distinct both federal and state entity, works and how it responds to to those who say that they've been sexually assaulted or harassed or abused in some way. Um, And so Megan is a, she's technically still in the Army National Guard. She's awaiting her official, an official medical discharge now. Um, But she came to me in, she, I think I heard from her at the end of October, actually, of 2018, and said that she had a story to tell and um, wanted to know if I was interested in, in talking to her about her experience with the National Guard. And that was right around the time that she was, uh, she was preparing for a type of quasi-judicial hearing that is the focus of tomorrow's story called a withdrawal of federal recognition panel. So she had 
um, the the National Guard was going after her for a few things that she admitted to. She she, um, she, she did some wrong things, um, but then they were going after her for some things. She said she, she acknowledged that she did and other things that she says that she did not do. And um, she had wanted me to come along to that to that hearing. And so it really started with me starting at what where the series ends <laughs> um, in, in trying to strip her of, of her federal recognition as an officer. But, um, but yeah, that's really where it began. She came to me and told me her story and supplied, you know, hundreds of records really that um, corroborated the things that she told me happened to her as far as the way that the guard treated her and how they responded to her, her allegations that dated back to 2013. And and she talked about, I think it was three specific instances or, or three different men who had allegedly sexually assaulted her while she was in the guard. You came across reports talking about other instances of sexual assault that uh, occurred and, and reports that were filed. And as you've been reporting this story, it's come to light that there's a really widespread problem going on here. And both at the federal level and the state level, there's been an investigation called for. Where are we with that? And and how did that come to light as you were working through Megan's story? Sure. Yeah. So that's true. One thing that, um, I mean, is frankly somewhat frustrating in the moment when news like that breaks when you've been working on the issue for months prior to that, but then also in the same sense is helpful in realizing that you're, you're looking into something that other people have now acknowledged is a problem and something worth looking into. And so the way that that, so the status of the investigation as far as um, the Evers administration has told me, and this is something that is in the story on Friday that has not been reported yet, is that um, we know that uh, several other types, several other folks, not including Megan, had been complaining to Senator Tammy Baldwin for a while. And the AP reported earlier this year, maybe in January maybe was like the first headline that the AP had reported that or Senator Baldwin had asked for the Air Force, the the Air Force from the Pentagon in D.C. basically to take a look at things. But then, uh, you know, there were a couple other headlines where more folks had come out. Um, Senator Fitzgerald had gotten involved with with other folks coming to his office and saying that there was a bad culture of sexual misconduct and some cover up um, both with the Army National Guard and the Air National Guard, because there are two those are two components of the guard, uh, and then Fitzgerald started to get involved and made some statements, and that culminated with Governor Evers formally inviting the National Guard Bureau, which is a federal agency that oversees the National Guard in each state, to come in and conduct an investigation, and that was formalized where the guard said that they would be doing that uh, in late April, and so um, the Evers administration has confirmed to me that just just I think in the last week or two, uh, we have federal investigators now in Wisconsin coming and um, requesting the records of the, the the guard here. The investigation is set to last six to nine months and be released in early 2020, at which point Governor Evers says that it is his intention to make the full report public. Um, the Guard Bureau has done this in other states. The only one I really have read anything about, though, is um, in Alaska, where it came out with a report of that guard in 2014 and had some missteps, I think, prior to that. So I think there's still some questions with like how the National Guard Bureau actually works and how they do investigations. Um, but it'll it'll be interesting to see what what happens with that going forward. Yeah. So I mean, in in addition to 
the actual instances of, of sexual assault that are reported, um, it seems like there's sort of two layers to this story. First, the fact that this is happening, that this culture is uh, existing throughout the state. Um, and second, how the guard responds to those accusations when they come to light, because there is a system, but it's, it sounds like the, the complaints have been that that system is not working. What specifically did you hear from Megan? And, and have you read in the reports that you looked at that uh, calls into question the effectiveness of that system? So I think a couple of things that that were particular problems for her and that were really evident, too, when you reviewed the investigations of her complaints, really, and, and these investigations, technically the Guard is supposed to refer cases out to the National Guard Bureau, and Megan had told me that that there was a man who came from out of state to investigate her claims. And so there's questions, though, about, I think, and this is something that I think the the public really deserves to know, and I would like to know more, too, is exactly how does it work uh, when someone makes a claim as far as who determines which investigator is assigned to that and how do they do their job. And so what we saw with how the investigator respond to Megan's complaints, the, the summation of the investigations really didn't deal with whether or not a certain event or an incident took place at a certain date or time, but was interviewing a handful of people, making character assessments about her, and then what those people thought about her believability versus the alleged perpetrator. And so there were things in the reports showing um, they noted any time she did or did not show emotion while recounting her story. They also noted and, and brought up you know, things that she felt re-traumatized by when they quoted other people calling her flirty or a snake Mm -hmm. um, or things like that. And so I think there is a, to me, again, these stories are hard even as a reporter because when someone comes to you and says, this happened to me, you know, as an investigative reporter, I really am acutely aware that there is not a way for me to know for sure exactly what happened. And Mm -hmm if someone is fully telling you the truth or not. And though, and that's why, regardless of what the story is, we ask people to kind of corroborate with as many types of records that they can and, and have other people corroborate that to some extent too. And so to me, the thing that stood out the most about the story was that she was able to provide me with these documents that just showed the way that the system reacted to her and the way that investigators carried out their work. And so whether she is telling the truth or she's not, the fact that investigations are conducted the way that they are, outside experts who deal with this say that that was an an inappropriate way to go about doing that, which I think is important for people to know. And so I think, um, yeah, another problem too that I have heard from others is just that, you know, they're – there is one formal sexual assault response coordinator in Wisconsin for 10,000 military personnel here within the Guard. And there's just one person in every state in the country. Here, we have one main guy, um, Major Robert Branya, who's been in my stories. And then we have another woman who's, who's part-time and also works. And they are victim advocates that operate somewhat outside of the normal. They're in the system, but they operate somewhat outside of it is the sense of it is their duty and obligation to advocate for victims. But that's not many people for a lot of, you know, military personnel. And so in Megan's case, I think she was frustrated often that there was just not consistency with special victims advocates or attorneys or there's just a lot of always rotating and moving parts. And I think that can make it hard too. 
Yeah. I was struck by some of the things that you mentioned from those reports in terms of the way that they assessed her. I mean, look, looking to see whether she cried when she was talking about things that happened or looking to see how she responded to a therapy dog and why she, like, she didn't seem to need the therapy dog. So things were okay. I mean, that just, and you, you talked to uh, an expert who said it sounded like these reports were written by children. Tell me about the people that you went to for validation about on this and, and what they thought of the reports that they looked at. Yeah, the, the folks that I had spoken to are people who really are tracking this issue on a national level in D.C. And I had a woman from, it's an organization called the Service Women Service Women Action Network, and they they do work on a, a litany of issues related to, to female personnel in the military. But then, um, and she has been, you know, in the military herself and had was able to kind of look and see the the chain of events there and say this really looks like yeah I've seen something like this before this looks like retaliation or this looks improper and the the guy who had noted about the way the reports are written Colonel Don Christensen is a was a longtime Air Force prosecutor and now is the head of this nonprofit called Protect Our Defenders and they do a lot of work in D.C. they've testified in Congress and. And so, yeah, I mean, he's an attorney and has experience and and, 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 and and he's with the Air Force, but still just a general understanding of how the military, how one might conduct an investigation in a sexual assault and was just appalled at the things that were that were written there. And yeah, I mean, I think I was struck too just reading it and you wonder, just try to put it into context and wonder if this is, if is this the way things are supposed to be done? Because <laughs> it, it seems a little... <laughs> You know, it seems like maybe not, but as you know, and so it's helpful to like bring those things to people who are experts to get some context about is this is this the way that now kind of like victims victim advocates are saying is best practice as far as how we how we treat victims or even though getting to the bottom of whether or not something did or did not happen in these reports, the thing that struck me is that there was really no even litigation of facts that were in if it happened, it was not written in the report about what occurred at the date and time she said it it did. And so um, the other troubling thing was, you know, she ended up, after the fact, making her reports unrestricted, which means they could be eligible to be investigated. And that happened at the same time, but the events themselves were years apart, and they were investigated all, like, one within the other and built upon each other when it involved, they all involved Megan, but they all involved different men at different times. And so... Again, I think like even if she's not telling the truth, um, it seems to me that it's prudent to just have, you know, more of a standard to to kind of adjudicate that or get to the bottom of that in an investigation. And so I think that it's just in the public's interest to have an understanding of how that's done because it's our public dollars that are funding this and these people are putting their lives on the line for us. And I think that, you know, it's my aim in wanting to do work that's sh- you know, shines a light on this to to make it better. Yeah. Your second story talked about the process a little bit more. And, and another thing that sort of seemed, is that right? When I, when I was reading it is some of the people who are charged with investigating these things are potentially investigating claims against themselves or against their close coworkers. What did you hear about that? And, and how did that work? Right. Yeah. And the, and the second story with the Emond report that um, to me also, considering all of the, the different records that I that I had, is is an important report that I think 
is is worth showing the public about what a guard investigator found within its ranks. And I think even if as things may have improved or changed in light of that, I think that was revealing because, as you said, it showed that in this instance, there are there were full time staff soldiers who, you know, are responsible for a lot of really key elements of running a unit. And so they they run the logistics of the unit and they, they have supplies. And so although they might not be the highest ranking person, the fact that they're full time and even the commanders are part time um, really has the potential to give these full time people a lot of influence. And that's what we saw in this unit where this investigate the, the four horsemen story. And we saw that there had been a dozen incidents of sexual misconduct that had happened in this unit over six years as com- as multiple commanders cycled out of it. And so I think that that just brings to light important questions about, you know, who really has the power? Or where was a breakdown where that this could persist for that long without commanders really knowing it? And um, again, to me was, I think, interesting and worthy of discussing because the system where full-time soldiers can be potentially in a position to run the units, which their own investigator said, is something that the, the own investigator said should be guarded against. Um, and so that to me is something that's really different about how the National Guard is set up than what we see with active duty forces. And um it has the potential to really set a culture and a dynamic that can be really if you if you have someone who's really bad or a predator in those positions they have the they have the the potential to do um, to do a lot of harm if there's n- no real active oversight wedge issues is sponsored by wispolitics.com you can become a wispolitics.com member. Find out more at wispolitics.com slash membership. So what has the guard said to you throughout this process about um, how they've responded over the years, about how they're responding now, about how they're cooperating with investigations that are coming? Sure, yeah. So the guard, um, I mean, first of all, one thing that they have said, and I'll and I, I understand this, um, you know, they've been increasingly more open um, as far as me working with their public affairs office as I've reported this story. I think in the beginning it was really hard, difficult for me to get people to respond to me promptly and for me to get information about what's really going on there. They have said, though, that, you know, they've been unable to comment on the specifics of some of the documents I've obtained because of a federal privacy act that bars them from that, you know, which I and I understand they need to abide by the law in that way. But they've pointed out a few points that have happened that they say has indicates real progress in what they're doing. Um, In 2015, I believe it was, folks at the Guard worked with Scott Walker's administration to amend the Wisconsin Military Code of Justice to clarify what is meant by a sexual assault and harassment and what types of penalties will follow from that. I think prior to that, it was a really antiquated view of that. There was a change, I think, on the federal level also potentially around that time or just after that then automatically triggered investigation. So they had told me that in the past, even if someone had come now, if someone makes an allegation of sexual assault, they make a report, and that report is unrestricted, which means that it can be open into the chain of command to investigate. An investigation automatically happens. In the past, that wasn't always the case. It was like, you need to kind of clear a certain bar before we'll even examine your claim. And now it's like every claim is examined, they say. And so 
that's been a thing that's been I think they say a big step forward um the the sexual assault victim advocates that I've spoken to I think you know have told me that they really are always striving to improve and figure out how to respond to these in in the best way and that the spokespeople at the guard say that it's their intent to rid the ranks of perpetrators Um, and I think it gets sticky because then the unclear thing is is like well these folks even you know folks who have who are perpetrators and the guard can substantiate that and agree with that I mean what happens to them then? Like, where is there's not really any public um, insight then into if these people are punished and what that looks like and if that's appropriate and are they just sort of shuffled around from place to place? I mean, and I understand again, there's like personnel or privacy things there, but it's um, I think that's tricky because it's hard for the public to really know if what they say they're doing they're doing because there's they're they're sometimes bound by law to not be able to tell us. Um, or they're unwilling to, or, you know, a combination of both. So, um, so yeah, they, they've been more, they responded to me in writing when I had questions and told them what I was going to publish with the documents that I had. Then they had a media day where we, we waited to publish the story to go to their media day and, and ask questions of folks. And then since then, they have said, they had said that they would make their victim advocates available. Um, I have requested also an interview, though, with um, Renee Imond, who authored the document I have, and Adjutant General Donald Dunbar, and they have not made either of them available. I've asked to interview Dunbar multiple times, um, and they've not made him available. But their spokespeople are responsive to me now, and they say that they are they're open and willing and ready for the National Guard Bureau to come in and investigate what they're doing, and they say they want to, you know, receive that and respond appropriately and, you know, and continue to improve. You mentioned a couple of things in terms of just the way that the story was put together. And I know, you know, those of us who work with you have been watching you work on this for a long time and can kind of see how it works. But I, I think probably people who read these stories don't always know exactly what goes into them. And especially when you're reporting on something as sensitive as this and as difficult to confirm details or claims as this issue is, what was your process? I mean, how did you put this together and make sure this was something that you felt comfortable publishing and and putting out into the world? Yeah. um, So I think that it's been it's been a process. I and yeah, I mean, it is, as you said, it's it's not an easy topic and it is a hard story in this way. I think that um, I understand and have heard the perception too that it, you know, you get hear a, an allegation like this and it's like, oh, a great story and a, and, and a kind of a knee jerk reaction to be sensationalist about it. And, you know, maybe that might be some other person's idea, but that's really not my aim or intent. And so, I mean, for me, it really was a lot of time speaking with Megan, asking her lots of questions, and then to back up what she was telling me with documents she had. And so she, you know, as I, it started with her reaching out, I went to this um, withdrawal of federal recognition hearing with her in Madison. I talked with her attorney who, you know, in the story today, he's quoted, talked about how, you know, he was an attorney from out of state who'd been, you know, had been representing Um, military personnel who had, you know, who are being investigated in multiple ways and over many years and said that this, this, this process was jack, quote, jacked up from the beginning, I think is his quote. And I understand that he's representing her. So maybe he's not objective in that way. But, you know, someone from out of state kind of coming in and seeing that and, um, 
and so you know you, you kind of get that piece and so it's it's really like a, a slow process frankly of just thinking through it a lot in my own head and trying to discern what she's telling me and and how how she's responding to me and then what other people are saying and then and then really reading through and digesting the records that she gave me and so it's so you know she she gave me all of her medical records, all of her therapist notes, the medical records that she used to file for her VA claim and benefits, um, every investigation that the guard did of her, um, emails and and hundreds of documents of correspondence between her and def- attorneys that she had and special victims advocates, uh, journals that she had, and um, then any any and all the investigations that she was able to get through a discovery process with her attorney she had made her own FOIA requests for a variety of documents and so for me you know as a reporter you're talking to someone like that and you're saying okay well are they do they ever do they get defensive when i ask them a question like how how are they responding to you when you're asking them hard questions or you're asking them to back up what you're what they're telling you with the document she was able to answer every question and back up what she was telling me about her own account really every step of the way. Um, I think then for me, as far as discern, you know, and there's a whole point, like, am I going to even write this story? Is this a credible person? You recognize that I cannot fundamentally know if what she's saying happened on those days with those men actually is the way that that happened. But then again, it starts to become clear when you see the documents and the way that they point to the system in that way. And so for me, again, it's like, it's a discovery process of trying to understand, like, are you going to write the story? What is the story? And then what do you need to kind of like f- more fully flesh that out about the system and add some context to it where you then go to outside experts. And so um, for me, again, the, the real clincher was the Renee Imond report because to me, again, at the end of the day, even if she was not telling the truth, that, you know, it was her complaint that triggered that investigation where an investigator found these other things. And that's something that, you know, again, like big pieces of corroborating evidence. So it really is like me for myself trying to investigate and discern that and trying to be fair and aware of how I'm processing things and my own biases that might color something for me or not. And just really overthinking and over, you know, a lot. Like it's it's mentally exhausting, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I do it and I do it to sometimes maybe an extreme. But I... Um, But yeah, and then after all of that, you know, you sit and you figure out then how to tell that in a very digestible, readable way. And her story really is long. It's convoluted. It's complicated. I wrote a draft that was 35 pages and 15,000 words. Oh, my God. And yeah, (laughs) I mean, and I I did interviews with her over the course of three days that were nine hours of record of tape then. So it's like then you transcribe the interviews and... um, and then you forget, you get so in the weeds of like her story and then the, the guard that then you re- realize that many people in Madison, our own editors, like don't understand what the guard is, how it works. And even things to me that seem pretty basic, like the difference between an, an officer or an enlisted personnel, mm-hmm. you know, our an editor read and was like, that doesn't, I don't know that people understand what yeah. an enlisted person is versus an officer and how you become an officer or what a non-commissioned officer versus a commissioned officer is. Anyway, so I think the writing and then the editing process too is like, is just laborious and um, incredibly drawn out. We delayed publication on this again for 
about a month when we, we gave the guard a week to respond to questions. I told them I had the Iman report and asked them to respond to it. Um, we waited to hold the story until we went to the media day to talk to people there. And so I guess it's it's a balance. You know, you don't want to like – and then throughout all that time, the AP kept writing stories about that, the you know mm-hmm. – s- um, about what was happening, <laughs> which again is maybe somewhat validating, but frustrating when right. you want to break a story in that, you know, and you've been working on it for a while and then they're just flipping out blips about, <laughs> you know, flipping out blips. <laughs> uh, sorry. They're, they, they do, they do good work. Uh, of course. Um, anyway, so yeah. And then the, then, yeah, I mean, in this case, two editors here, um, worked through this our managing editor is incredibly the fine-tooth comb oh my gosh he's meticulous he is yeah that's the word yeah he's <laughs> yeah. incredibly meticulous and it was the hardest editing process I think I've ever gone through um to to make sure that they're readable they make sense and we're like choosing words in a precise way and again attempting to convey nuance which I think is sorely lacking in a lot of what we read in print today and it, it it's something I really tried to you know, write in a compelling way, but with nuance and, and accuracy. And so there's a lot of balls to juggle. <laughs> and I, um, it's, it's challenging. It's challenging. Yeah. I mean, you put a lot of your own self into working on something like this. I'm sure you're exhausted. <laughs> I am a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it is, it's hard. I mean, you, I, I, I'm really passionate about the work I do and it's hard you know, you got to have boundaries, but it, of course I really care and want to do it well. And so with something like this that then you become completely immersed in, it's it's definitely personal to me in the sense of my name's on it and I care about the way that it affects people and and what it can do. So, Yeah, I mean, anytime someone's willing to give you hours of their life and open up about things that are really uncomfortable for them, you want to make sure that you're doing a service to them, but also being fair and getting everything else in that you need to, to get the proper context. It's yeah, it's, a, it's an honor and it's a huge responsibility. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, definitely true. Well, if, if anyone hasn't read this yet um, or hasn't read the entire series, it's all available, some of it in print and all of it on the Cap Times website. And I bet you're probably looking for your next big story. Uh, so how can yeah. people find you if they would like to <laughs> yeah. share their stories with you? Indeed. Um, yeah, so people can always reach out. And I try to, you know, emphasize as well that I just I appreciate hearing from people and having conversations about whatever, you know, um, type of news or story is on your mind. And it's never I'm always happy to talk off the record, I guess, or on background about um, about this issue. I, I will be working on this issue for a while yet here. But part of the luxury of my job is that I can always take a deep dive into other types of things that are going on and that and I can really do justice and try to do diligence in something that um, is complex. Anyway, so you can reach me by emailing me. Uh, it's kfarrell, like my last name, at madison.com. <laughs> and then uh, you can call me too. And that number is 608-252-6462. Um, and it's all on the website as well. So people can and I'm on Twitter sometimes <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I, I, yeah yeah um I'm there too you can message me <laughs> well thanks for taking some time to share how your story came together yeah thank you and since my heart still likes to be I'm coming home thank you for listening to wedge issues 
Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll be back every Friday with new episodes, so make sure you're subscribed on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie, or you can email me at j-o-p-o-i-e-n at madison.com. You can also leave ratings or reviews on iTunes. And if you leave a good one, that'll help us out. While you're waiting for new episodes of Wedge Issues, you can also check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Corner Table and The Mad Splainers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Wedge Issues has been brought to you by Wispolitics.com. There are plenty of benefits to becoming a member. You can go to wispolitics.com slash membership to find out more.